Our first reading is from uh, Matthew 9.35 down to 10.23. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the name of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy as worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The second reading today is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 to 42. The student is not above his, the, te the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, nor hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Well, thanks very much. We've had a cheery start to the, to the day with an earthquake and um, now this rather sobering passage um, that we're looking at this morning. So why don't I pray that we can actually learn something from all of that this morning. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you particularly for this part of your word this morning that talks about mission. Help us to understand a little bit better our, our mission in this world uh, as Christians individually and also as a church here at Mount Barker. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, <clears throat> if I said to you the word mission, um, I wonder what, you, what, what sort of images would come up for you um, or for your friends perhaps in the, in the public space. So perhaps that sort of idea, um, if we go to the next slide, the Western you know, sort of imperialism pushing its agenda on rich and diverse cultures that otherwise um, would have been really fine unless we um, interfered with them, or maybe um, some sort of religious extremist, um, or maybe you're thinking, you know, or your friends are thinking of Tom Cruise dangling from uh, a secure line, um, or more humorously, the Blues Brothers on a mission from God, um, or perhaps that framed mission statement that is on the wall at work that nobody looks at. Whatever it is, that image of uh, what people think of when they hear the word mission will actually shape their concept of what mission is. So what I want to do this morning is try and use Matthew 10 to help you understand mission a little bit better. You'll see there's an outline uh, that you got given as well, and if that's helpful for you, follow that as we go along. But I think there's two... There's two things we need to define here. One is, the, fir the first is what is mission? So mission is to articulate and demonstrate the news of Jesus Christ 
and its conveying demands and benefits. And that comes from the CMS, the Church Missionary Society. What is evangelism? Well, here's a definition from Lausanne Congress on World Evangelism in 1974. It's, you know, nearly 50 years old, but it's still, I think it's very helpful. Evangelism is the proclamation of the historical, biblical Christ as Saviour and Lord with a view to persuading people to come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. So I don't know whether you can see the difference between those two definitions of mission and evangelism, because mission is actually an umbrella term that's far more comprehensive, that defines our relationship that God, a relationship that God has to, uh, to his people and how, what relationship they have to his world, of which evangelism is a critical component, but it's one component. Um, mission is broader than the articulation of the good news. It's also service, isn't it, that's rendered by Christians through their radically transformed lives that they go and live uh, out in the world. It's the visible demonstration of being God's people before a watching world. So people look on and they see Christians and we show them what it looks like to be reconciled to God um, and liberated from our sins. So mission is evangelism, talking about it, but mission is also service and it's being God's community uh, and, and mission will be compromised if you get obsessed with just one of those three. You may recall from the Great Commission message that um, I came up here and um, spoke to you about from Matthew 28 uh, back in January, uh, that was the close of Matthew's Gospel. So we've shifted back now into uh, an earlier part of Matthew's Gospels. But there um, Christ was sending his followers into the world as his representatives. And he told them there to make disciples of all nations. So he didn't tell them to just get people over the line and sign, I'm a Christian. And today we're going to have a look at how we do our mission and how we can avoid mission becoming defective in the way that we do it, as a church or as an individual. So in Matthew 10, it's sort of a hinge in the book of uh, Matthew's Gospel. And you can read it actually at two levels at least, as far as I can see. It tells you something of the content of the historical mission of Jesus um, at that particular time and place. And curiously, Matthew is more interested in recording the pep talk that Jesus gives to his disciples rather than giving us a blow-by-blow account of what happens when the disciples go out and do it. But it also can be valued because of what it can tell us universally about what is involved in the nature of mission. And so for those of you who like to take notes, here are the three points that we're going to look at today. The first is the power of mission, then the dangers of mission, and finally, the love that stokes mission. So the power of mission, the dangers of mission and then the love that stokes mission. If you look at verses 1 to 10, mission gets introduced to us there, and uh, the team is identified, and the authority gets delegated, and there are parameters to the mission in verses 5 and 6. Uh, what to say, what to do, and what to take in verses 7 to 10. And the most incredible thing at this point is that Jesus' mission gets fused to the disciples. It hasn't happened up until this point 
in Matthew's Gospel. The disciples are given the authority of Jesus to do his mission. In fact, disciple and apostle there are almost interchangeable terms. Although it sounds quite religious, the word apostle, it actually comes from a word which means uh, like a business enterprise, a venture that goes out. And it, it particularly referred to you know, um, ships that were financed and uh, sent out by a group of people uh, for trade or for a particular enterprise. Um, it's funny, the first church that I worked in full-time, I was the um, assistant minister, and Merle and I lived in the house that was supplied not by the church but by a dozen people in the church who had actually all chipped in to buy a house in Werribee together. And they called it The Voyage. And that was actually that The Voyage met and talked about the property and how, you know, what it needed and stuff like that. But it was, it was basically, that's the idea of the word apostle here. It's, it's the idea of going on mission is to go on a voyage or a quest uh, together. And Jesus says, as much as the Father sent me, so I send you. He said this on, on at least one occasion. When you think about it, God thought globally about our world, and what did he do? He came in a local presence in Palestine. And that pattern gets repeated when he sends these guys. They go out to a specific group of people at this particular point. And he then repeats the pattern when uh, the early church sends out their sent ones on a voyage. It's empowering to realise that mission is actually God's idea. It's his enterprise, not a human thing. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? When, you know, you've got to organise calendars and rosters and, you know, set a vision and goals for the year ahead and work out how you're going to find the finances for making a church work for the year. But it's easy to forget what we're here for, which is a mission, a quest, a voyage. Mission is about being sent and being delegated with the same authority that in the end Jesus talked with and amazed the crowds with. In the last week, we've listened intently to representatives and diplomats of various countries responding to the deplorable situation in the Ukraine, with Russia spilling over the borders into that country. And what I think was powerful was that as each person got up to speak in the settings that they were in, you realised that they were speaking on behalf of their country or on behalf of the EU or NATO or the US. And they were pleading with Putin to desist. And we understand that they were representatives at that point. They weren't there giving us their own opinions. They had the great privilege of representing their countries or their organisations they were part of. So what we see here with Jesus sending his disciples out is the great privilege of representing him, of merging together what he's doing with what we do. 
Um, verse 7, as you go, he says, proclaim the message the kingdom of heaven has come near. In terms of the content, it's exactly the same as what John the Baptist preached, that the kingdom of God is near. It's exactly the same what Jesus preached in chapter 4, verse 17, the kingdom of God is near. So close is the alignment that Jesus says in verse 25, if he's the head of the house and people have no respect for him, then they certainly won't respect the rest of the family that turn up. The identification is taken even further with the now and the then logic of verses 32 and 33. Uh, 32 and 33. Have a look at it. Identify with Jesus now before people, and Jesus will identify with you before God then in heaven. Disown Jesus now before people, and Jesus will disown you before God the Father in heaven. And in verse 42, those who receive the people that Jesus sends are as good as receiving Jesus himself. Ultimately, mission is really an identification of yourself with Jesus. It's not good enough to think that he's outstanding and a great leader in history. His mission must become our mission. Jesus sent his disciples out. He didn't save them and then say, you know, get on with your own aspirations of your life again. He did not leave people in offices and studies to just mirror the career goals of the people around them. He didn't leave people behind their quaint picket fences to do their COVID renovations for the rest of life. They became sent ones. And a sent one is not someone who crosses the sea but someone who sees the cross. What an absolutely radical way of thinking of what you're going to do tomorrow, whatever that is. You know, hop on a bus and commute down to the city, perhaps after a long break away from that. Your Zumba class that you might go to. The people you wave to over the fence. The school pickup. Sometime this week, when you are stressing out, just stop and think to yourself and remind yourself, I've been sent here. I've been sent here by Jesus. This time, this place, these people. That is the power of mission, to be sent. Well, with empowerment comes pain and danger. So much so that Jesus pitches it like sending out sheep among wolves. I mean, that's an utterly hostile environment to throw someone into. And Jesus bursts any bubble that imagines, you know, being on mission as one sort of never-ending pack of Tim Tams. Mission is difficult and it's complex and it brings with it as you read through this chapter, you know, the, the, the worry about provision and the fear of hostility and the pain of ruptured relationships. And anyone who tells you differently to that doesn't understand the mission that Jesus sends his disciples on. It's really messy. Mission will make your life messy. In verses 9 and 10, they're told to pack the, the opposite to this. 
all right, which is what family holidays are often like, you know, when you take the car. You try and fit everything, everything into the car. Well, the way that Jesus tells his disciples to pack is the opposite to this. It's like flying on the cheapest airline on the cheapest ticket with absolutely no luggage and the barest of limits um, to your carry-on. The unspoken thought is that God will supply the most basic of needs. Food and shelter will be met by those who welcome them. Jesus says in verse 10, these workmen are worthy of their keep. They can rely on their employer to provide for them. But not only food and shelter, even the words that they need to say will be supplied. Verses 19 and 20, as they're dragged up before the rulers of the world, these Galilean peasants, he says, don't be intimidated. In these flashpoint situations, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And you read that in the book of Acts. He then goes on to paint some of the most life-threatening circumstances from verse 21. He sees a time in the future when they'll undergo a real hammering. And this teaching is scattered throughout the other Gospels when you read about it, but Matthew helpfully collates it all together into one spot in this chapter. And why is this all going to happen, verse 22? Because they're associated with the name of Jesus. In AD 70, Jewish Christians left Jerusalem in response to persecution. They just sort of like were sent like marbles scattering all over the known world of the time. And up until Roman Emperor Constantine, mission took place not primarily through professional Christians like myself with a theological degree, but thanks to the constant witness of hundreds of thousands of merchants and slaves and exiled Christians just bobbing around the world, giving voice to Jesus wherever life took them. Humanly speaking, for the first four centuries, Christians were the mud of society. Well, they had a strategy of infiltration, didn't they? I mean, they didn't wait until they got to a certain size before they had impact. They were a minority impacting a majority. Think about how history is repeating itself now. You know, you think about the kids that are out there learning about Jesus now. Think about how different that world is that they're walking into to the one that perhaps some of us who are a little older remember, where most of the kids that we went to school with went to Sunday school, where most people understood at least the ethics of what Christianity was on about and could see it reflected in their society. We can be afraid of the hostility that is inevitable with carrying the name of Jesus or we can follow Jesus' instruction in verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, persecutors, they may, they may be able to terminate a physical life but they cannot touch the soul. We all have fears in life. Some of those fears are rational, some of them are quite irrational at points. But what do we fear most? Well, Jesus says the wise person fears the right things. Reconciling sinful, wayward people to a holy God is disruptive, it's messy, it's a hostile sort of thing. But what can bring the greatest anguish is when the enemies come from within. 
from under your own roof sometimes, he says. If you look at verses 34 to 36 there, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, enemies under your own roof. The anguish of mission is that sometimes treachery is found in the places where we normally look for love. That's the painful possibility of entering Jesus' mission. It could rupture some of your closest relationships. And if you expect to be universally liked in this world by just keeping your nose clean and your head down, you may have problems following Jesus. Mission may bring with it huge disruption and division rather than peace and concord. Mission costs. It costs these disciples everything they had, but think about it. Mission cost God everything he had. Here's a challenging thought. When it comes to following Jesus, are you into vision or provision? You know, are you part of God's great plans that roll along for this universe? Or are you looking for him to simply rubber stamp your dreams? Do you want Jesus to lead you? Or do you just want him to feed you? Mission is powerful and it's dangerous. But mission will affect us at a deeply emotional level. If you look at some of the emotions that have surfaced so far in what we've read, there's fear, there's worry, there's shame, there's hate, but there's one actually that rises above the others and that is love. It is love, love which motivates and drives Jesus' mission forward as it should ours. Firstly, the love that God has for those he sends. If you look at verses 29 to 30 again, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than the sparrows. At moments in mission when you are right, you have every right to be afraid. Jesus reminds us of the infinite worth we have to him. God's power to preserve life is contrasted with the limits of those who in hate try to eradicate his sent ones. You know, God is not busy, with, so busy with his grand plans for this universe that he doesn't notice the smallest of details Nowadays, you know, in, in, in business and work, it's the big picture people that we call in, you know, because they're going to solve things. And they, 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 they see the big picture and then, they, you know, they don't care about the detail. You know, the detail, that can be left to the anal retentives to sort of sweep up. But that's not God. That's not the character of God. He has an abiding interest in the lives of those people who are part of his mission, right down to the minutest details of their lives. That's how precious sent ones are to God. And that love is a two-way street. If you look at verse 37, anyone who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even the closest of human loves cannot compete with your love for Jesus. Those who are sent must love Jesus first and foremost. So if you've got God's love for you, 
You've got our love returned to him. And then finally, that love breaks the surface in compassion for the lost. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 6, keep on going to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's elaborating on an image that uh, we read in Matthew 9, verse 36, where he says Jesus looks at the crowd, he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus presents a stunning image of uh, mission, far more motivating than guilt or obligation or, you know, reward or even productivity. When Jesus looked at people without God, he sees sheep, cute little sheep. Well, those ones are anyway on the picture. But I tell you what he doesn't see, he doesn't see goats. Have you ever had a goat? Do you know how much more difficult goats are to leave alone? Because they can look after themselves. But sheep, my goodness... Sheep, they're not robust. They, they can get lost, they can get wounded, they can get torn apart by predators. Last weekend we went um, to see my sister in Victoria. She, she's in Western Victoria on a farm and her, she's recently widowed. So we went over to just sort of touch base with her. And since her husband has died uh, late last year, she's sold 1,300 sheep on that property, like that's almost all her sheep. And she's got 30 left. And these 30 that are left are the little, the the ones that were abandoned and that she hand fed and reared. And you know, they're the flotsam and jetsam of the herd really. And they they were kept in the home paddock, but the gate was left open so they could feed beyond the paddock. And last Saturday night, before it was getting dark, she said that that they haven't come back for their flavour beans, their flavour beans. And I I said, I could see she was worried about it. So there's me. I'm on the ute with her. And she says, let's go out to the back paddock, which is a long way out, to try and get these 30 sheep back. I thought, oh, gosh, how are we going to do this before sunset? So we head off. And she says, oh, remember, they like humans. So just call to them. So that's me up there going, meh, <laughs> out to the horizon. And then finally, after several goes at this, I hear, meh, back. And I look on the horizon, and there's this little clump of, you know, sheep who, you know, making their little faltering steps towards us. And then they realise that it's us. It's human beings who love them. And they start running. So then my sister says, quick, get in the car, because we can't have them all underneath the, steer, underneath the wheels. We've got to get ahead of them. So we head back, and the sheep are coming behind over the hill and into the paddock, and we get them in. They're not robust, you see. It's the most... Bizarre encounter, I think, I've ever had with the most unusual sheep. But they weren't robust enough to leave out in that back paddock. Without a shepherd, Jesus says, sheep are toast. 
You know, that is what non-believers look like to Jesus. He's really moved in his gut here. Something stirs deep down inside him. Now, perhaps we don't care and we don't go and we don't share and we don't live that Christian life before those non-Christians. Well, because we're just not looking hard enough at what Jesus sees. Think for a moment of the people that you work alongside. Think about the people you cherish in your wider family. Think about the long-term friends that have been through the milestones with you. Think about the people you sit next to on the bus, the people you smile at across the fence. Can you see the true condition that we get here in Matthew 10? Harassed by pressures, hungry for something that eludes them, exhausted by their work and the pace of their lives, climbing ladders that seem to go nowhere, zooming till they drop, renovating because they're working from home and they've been staring at all the things that have been wrong about their house for, you know, years now. Sourcing the best food, finding the best sex, the best holiday, pampering their bodies with treatments one minute and then pummeling them with exercise the next. And after the last few years of COVID, even more of the props have been kicked out from underneath a lot of us. So people are harassed, they're helpless, they're clinging to to a cause so short-sighted that just as they think they're getting to it and they go to grasp their hands around it, it disappears on them like a mirage. The same people Jesus took the time to really look at with gut-wrenching compassion. Any mission that, you know, turns people into stats for us to talk about at the end of the year or faceless entities to be targeted to fulfil our vision and crunch our numbers. (laughs) It's not the mission Jesus talks about. Mission is stoked by love and it will change the scent and those they go to. Okay, so how can Jesus' mission become yours? I have three ideas. One, why don't you work out your own mission field? Go home today, get a piece of paper out, and draw a relational map of where you spend your life and with whom. All that, that, that web of people that are in your life and think about who you see regularly, when you see them, where you see them, what you talk about, what's occupying their headspace when they talk to you, what do you think might be the potential stumbling blocks for them when it comes to 
uh, understanding Jesus. We try and do that with workers because it helps them in their workspaces to think about the people around them in a completely different way as their mission field. That's number one. Number two, start by praying for people around you. Chapter 9, verse 35, at this point of being overwhelmed with the white harvest that Jesus sees, he doesn't say to them, redouble your efforts. He says, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Well, sometimes he'll send out you as you pray, but the idea is pray, not just be a nervous activist. When we pray coincidences begin to happen. We uh, started the workplace mission, Engage Work Faith, with prayer. And we said to workers, that's the bottom line, pray. So if you're interested in that, even if you're not a worker, you're retired or you, you, know, you don't consider yourself to be you know, a, a, in the workplace as such, just grab one of the two or more things and read through it and see what we actually do to try and set people up to pray with other people for lost friends because I think that helps. Three, make sure you have a balance between local and global. You know that it's easy to sort of move, fluctuate between one or the other um, and to become obsessed with one or the other. If you don't feel compassion for this place in Mount Barker, I mean, who is going to? You're the ones living here. So... You want to have a healthy heart for the local. But don't leave it there. Move beyond your own patch and cultivate an interest in God's kingdom in this world. You can't pray or you can't be interested in all the world, but you could drill down on a country or a people group or on a particular mission that's working with a particular type of people or situation and go and partner with that reliable mission agency. So they're my three tips. The power of mission is knowing you've been sent. Realistically it will be difficult because it's got inherent dangers to it but mission is pumped by love. Love for Jesus, his love for you and love the people we go to. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us to identify with you and your mission. May the two be fused together. Help us to anticipate the hostility that mission attracts and not be thrown by it when it occurs. And help us to feel the love that motivates mission. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.